Hey, Cramaholics, welcome back to our podcast. Before we take a deep dive into today's case, I just wanted to start off by saying a huge thank you to all of you who have listened to us. Because of you guys, we are going to be featured in Podcast Magazine for their special Beyond the Mic segment in their January 2021 edition. We are seriously so incredibly thankful and so very blessed with all of the support and the love that you guys have given us. As we watch our numbers rise in downloads and the growing number of countries listening, it is so incredibly exciting to see. Most of our cases that we have covered have been from the United States, which is where we are from. However, we are trying to continue to branch out beyond our borders. Today's case is out of Ireland, which is our very first Irish case ever covered here on Crimeaholics. I chose to do a case out of Ireland because it's our fifth country that we are most heard in. I also wanted to give a brief disclaimer for this case as the details of it can be very gruesome and hard to listen to. But as always, we try not to get into super graphic details, but there will be some information given that might be a little unsettling for some. This is the story of Anna Creasel and the youngest convicted killers in Irish history. Anastasia Kriegel was born in Russia on the 18th of February 2004 and was placed into an orphanage. In 2006, she was finally adopted by Geraldine Kriegel and her French-born husband Patrick Kriegel and was moved to Ireland. And according to Wikipedia, despite Geraldine and Patrick's not having any links to Russia themselves, they tried to make sure she kept her connections with her Russian culture. And so they kept her birth name of Anastasia, but they called her Anna for short. Growing up, Anna had an incredible childhood. Her and her family lived in Leakslip, which is just outside of Dublin in the county Kildare. Her parents gave her the best life that they could provide for her in Ireland, and she did things that most girls do growing up. According to a YouTube documentary that I watched about this case, Anna loved to dance. And her parents had set up her own little quarters where she could practice her dancing all day long in front of a large mirror. She also was a very strong swimmer and enjoyed being in the water. As a young teenager at the age of 14, Anna would often be mistaken for someone who was much older. She was very mature looking, but she was very much still a little girl on the inside. Anna was also very tall for her age, and her family friend states that her tallness and looking older often masked that young girl that was truly inside. Anna also struggled with making friends, and those who were the closest to her were her family. Her cousin was considered one of her best friends. Geraldine described her daughter as someone who truly craved a friendship. Anna just wanted to be accepted and have friends. But instead, Anna was bullied, and relentlessly. In secondary school, Anna suffered endless bullying, not only while at school, but online as well on all of her social media accounts. The types of bullying varied from sexual and explicit comments, and some of them were very violent in nature, even going as far as someone commenting on her YouTube account threatening to execute her. May 14, 2018 started off as any normal day. Geraldine woke her up to get her ready for school. She gave her a kiss and she left for work herself. 
Anna that day had a counseling session, so her mother had signed a permission slip so she could check herself out early. Anna returned home around 4 p.m., and her father, Patrick, was home at that time as well. Around 5 p.m., Patrick was out back doing some gardening when he heard a knock on the front door. He could hear some whispering and talking, so he went inside to check on Anna, and she was there talking to a boy at the door. He asked her if she should be studying, and she told her father that she wouldn't be long and that she would be right back. With a smile, she walked out of the door, and that was the last time Patrick would see his daughter alive. Before I go further, I want to explain that in Ireland, they have a law that they take extremely seriously. This law is that when a minor commits a crime, their identities will be withheld from the media even when they become of age. So for this story, I will refer to the boys that were involved as Boy A and Boy B. Anna that afternoon left her home with Boy B. When Geraldine got home from work about 20 minutes later, she asked her husband where Anna was. He told her that a boy had come to the door and the two had went out for a bit. Instantly, Geraldine was on high alert. Nobody came to the door for Anna. Nobody ever called the home for Anna. Anna was very much a loner and didn't have friends. She texted Anna immediately telling her to come home now. When Anna didn't reply, she texted again, answer me now or I'm calling the police. And I just want to say that this is absolutely heartbreaking that her mother knew how badly she was bullied and how alone her daughter was that when the moment someone came to the house looking for her, she instantly associated it with something very bad and not that Anna was finally being accepted. That point just hits me really hard and if I'm being honest, it makes me extremely emotional that her mom instantly knew that this was bad. So her parents ended up heading out to look around the area of their home to see if they could find Anna. They eventually went back home, ate a quick dinner, hoping that Anna would wander back in. And when she didn't, they went back out looking again. By 9 p.m., when nothing turned up of Anna, they went to the Leakslip Garda, which is the National Police Service for the Republic of Ireland. When they reported Anna missing, the only information they could give was that she had left with Boy B. The Guardi were able to track down who Boy B was, and they went to his home to check for Anna. When they asked him about Anna, he had said that he had called to her house that day, and then the pair had went to the park. He described how the two had only spent a little bit of time together before they parted ways and he went home and he had assumed that Anna had as well. The following day, the guards ended up going back to Boy B's house to question him further and it was at this point that his story began to change. He brought up another boy who was with him that afternoon. He said that Boy A asked him to call Anna's house that day for relationship reasons. He told the guardie that he went to Anna's house that day to pick her up to meet with Boy A and that he and Anna headed into St. Catherine's Park. Boy B claimed that the conversation that Boy A wanted to have with Anna was to let her know that he was just not romantically interested in her. Boy B claimed that he left Anna with Boy A, and after that, he didn't know what happened to her. As the days go by and still no trace of Anna, the guardie decided to have the boys come to St. Catherine's Park so they could recount their last interactions with Anna. 
When they got to the park, the guardie instantly noticed that boy A was limping. Not only that, but he had bruising and scratches on his arms. When asked about it, he said that he was attacked in the park at the day that Anna went missing. He said that when Anna and him parted ways while walking back home, he was attacked by two older guys. He had this huge elaborate story about being attacked and knocked to the ground where they apparently had kicked and punched him. And he magically somehow was able to fight these two guys off and managed to kick one of them in the head before they ran off. While walking around the park with the guardie, the boys ended up stopping near a BMX track. And the boys kind of did this weird glance at each other. The guardie picked up on this and instantly felt off. Like there was just something about this glance that they had between them that wasn't right and it wasn't settling right with the guardie. So then and there, the guardie made the decision to take the boys back into the station to take official statements from them. Their statements were inconsistent and the guardie wasn't buying what they were trying to sell. But because this was still considered a missing persons case, there wasn't too much that they could do at this point. There were searches that were still going on and searches were focusing on St. Catherine's Park and its surrounding areas. On May 17, 2018, just four days after Anna went missing, searchers were nearing a dilapidated house that sat adjacent to St. Catherine's Park. According to the Irish Central, the Glenwood House was once a beautiful farmhouse that was built in the 1800s. The home was eventually ruined by fire and remained empty and in crumbles since. The searchers went to the back of the house and ended up entering the house and went into what they labeled as Room 1. The room was dark and dingy and the only light that was coming into it was from a few small holes that had been punched through the boarded up windows. What they found inside this room would stick with them forever. The floor was completely saturated in blood, and there was blood also staining the walls. The body of Anna Creasel lay completely naked other than the pair of socks that were still on her feet. Her clothes were strewn about the room, and Anna had blue tape that was wrapped tightly around her neck. When she was found, she was found with three fingers inside of the ligature and her head tilted back. They concluded her fingers being inside the ligature was due to Anna desperately trying to pull it away from her neck. Pathologist Mary Cassidy was called to the scene. It was her impression that Anna was injured close to the doorway and then drug into the room that she was found in. Anna was covered in dirt and debris. She also found that Anna had over 55 sites of injuries to her body. During her post-mortem, she found that Anna had extensive injuries to her head and her neck. She had bruising on her face, irregular splits in her scalp, and she had sustained fractures to her eye socket, upper jaw, cheekbone, and to the cartilage in her neck. And she had also had bruising to her hands and her arms, which was consistent with defensive injuries. She also had bruising around her pubic bone area, as well as bleeding that had happened to the areas of her vagina. They could not for sure say what ultimately took Anna's life, but it was either blunt force trauma to the head or compression to the neck. Naturally, boy A and boy B, being the last people to see Anna, were instantly the prime suspects. What I haven't mentioned this far is that both of these boys at the time of Anna's death were just 13 years old. 
and Anna was 14 when she was murdered. And because of the ages of the boys, their identities weren't released, and also because of their ages, there were certain protocols that had to be followed. Both of their parents were notified of pending arrest before the Guardi actually arrived to their homes. When the boys were arrested, their homes were searched and items were seized and brought in as evidence. According to the documentary I watched, the community was in utter disbelief that such young boys could do such a horrific thing. People were fearful that this could have been their son or their daughter that had done something like this. And it got real for people in the community that evil things can be done at the hands of children. When looking into the boys' backgrounds trying to find anything that could make sense of what they had done, they couldn't find anything. And typically when children become offenders, they have a long history of abuse and neglect and anger issues. Something to make investigators and psychologists to go, aha, that is likely what triggered this. But for boy A and boy B, there was nothing in their histories that would even be concerning. Both boys came from very good homes and their families were comfortably living with no financial issues. Neither boys were abused while growing up. This was purely just evil lying within. Evidence from the crime scene was sent to the forensic testing and the lab results were expedited and boy A was charged fairly quickly with the murder of Anna. The clothing of Anna's that was found at the scene had boy A's semen on it. In the room was a piece of wood that had blood on it, as well as a concrete block that had blood and Anna's hair matted to it, which this block was ultimately used to smash into Anna's head repeatedly. There were several items that were seized in the initial search of Boy A's home, and one of them included a backpack that was found in his wardrobe that contained five items inside. What they found inside was shocking. There was gloves, knee pads, shin guards, a snood, and a mask. Now, if you ask me, this almost sounds like a murder kit or some kind of weird kit. The mask was described as something really chilling, and apparently it was made for Halloween. But the mask would only cover about half of the face. The eyes were painted black, and the bottom of the mask was jagged to make it look like it was almost like teeth. They dubbed this mask the zombie mask, and it was believed that these items, as well as other clothing items, had been worn when he murdered Anna Creasel. The backpack and the items were tested, and both on the inside and outside of the backpack, Anna's blood was found. Both her DNA and boy A's DNA were found on the mask. Her blood was also found on the knee pads and gloves that were inside of the backpack as well. In court, both boy A's parents recall him coming home on May 14th with blood on him. When asked about it, he also described the attack in the park. His mother ended up taking his clothing and washing them immediately so the blood couldn't stain. Which she did this innocently, of course. She had no reason to believe that her son could be capable of such a crime. So ultimately, his clothing did not have any kind of DNA evidence on them. But the other items found in Boy A's possession were quite damning. But if that wasn't enough evidence against him, the guardie had recovered a pair of boots that Boy A had been wearing on the night of the murder. On them, there was blood. When Boy A was first interviewed, the guardie knew that he wasn't being truthful. So they decided to show him a picture of the boots and stated to him that Anna's blood had been found on them. 
And he simply replied with, quote, you're joking. Are you serious? And then he told him that he needed to get some air. Gardy told him that they believed he had been in room one on May 14th when Anna had been murdered, to which he kept denying it. And beyond this point, he completely clammed up, refusing to talk any further and simply repeated no comment to their questions. So all of this evidence is stacked against boy A. And I'm sure you're wondering, okay, but what about boy B? What part did he have in this? There was no physical evidence to link that boy B had been in that room. However, the guardie was not letting up on him and really put the pressure on him in the interrogation room. Finally, his story began to crumble and between the lies and the half-truths, the truth began to shine out. During the first hours of his interview, Boy B stuck to his story that he was asked to go to Anna's house and bring her to Boy A. Because Boy A knew Anna had a romantic interest in him and that he just wanted to tell Anna that he wasn't interested in her. So Boy B claims he collected Anna from her house, brought her into St. Catherine's Park to meet up with Boy A, They all met up and boy B simply walked off to head home and he didn't know anything else. A witness had came forward that they had seen boy B near that farmhouse that day. When confronted with this information, boy B crumbled and said, okay, I was near the farmhouse, but I didn't go inside of it. He claimed that he waited outside while Anna and boy A went inside to discuss their relationship issues. He claimed that as he was about to leave, he heard a scream, and then the scream became like muffled, like someone was covering her mouth, and he got scared, so he ran away. He stated that he believed that both Boy A and Anna had been being attacked by someone that was already inside of the farmhouse, but he felt that Boy A was strong enough to defend both Anna and himself, so Boy B didn't try to help, and he just ran away. In later interviews, Boy B did finally admit that he had in fact gone inside the farmhouse. The guardie needed more though. Just because you're present at the time of a crime does not mean that you're guilty of participation. So the guardie kept pressing Boy B the best that they could given his age and at one point during the interview, Boy B turns to his mother and asks her to leave. The detectives, however, let him know that under the Children's Act, his mother had to remain present in the room because of his age. Boy B's conscience must have been eating him alive by this point because he finally came clean about some of the details about the attack. He said, quote, I realized that for things to be right, I had to tell you. He said that Boy A and Anna began approaching the house and Boy A had a blank look on his face. Boy A at this point told Boy B to leave, but he didn't. He said Boy A and Anna went into room one where he could immediately hear shuffling. Boy B decided to follow them into room one, and when he walked in, he could see Boy A was choking Anna and ripping off her clothes, and then he proceeded to flip her over. He claimed that at one point, Boy A looked over and saw Boy B standing in the doorway, and it was then that Boy B ran off. Ultimately, investigators came to their own conclusions that Boy B walked into the house first, checked to make sure that nobody was inside, and gave the okay to Boy A. And pretty much from there, it was game on. 
They believed that he was complicit in murder. Also during these interviews, Boy B admitted to Gardy that Boy A had been planning to kill Anna for a while. He claimed that a month prior to Anna being murdered, Boy A had asked Boy B if he wanted to kill someone. Boy B apparently thought he was joking but asked who he wanted to kill, to which Boy A replied Anna Creasel. He also claims that before the attack on Anna on May 14th, he believed that Boy A was just messing around and wasn't serious, until it was too late. The prosecution used this conversation against Boy B to prove that he had lured Anna to the abandoned farmhouse to meet Boy A. And this clearly proved that he was complicit in murder. The trial lasted six weeks and the jury took just 14 hours to come up with a verdict. Both of the boys were found guilty of murder. And Boy A was found guilty of aggravated sexual assault. This made both of these boys the youngest convicted killers in the history of Ireland. As I stated earlier, due to their ages and the laws in Ireland, their identities are supposed to never be released. However, some of the images of the boys were leaked to Facebook and Twitter, and then they were subsequently ordered to be removed. This is something that they take extremely seriously. And as recent as October 29th of this year, people were due in court for releasing the names and the images of these boys. And for this reason, I am not going to be including any of their pictures or their names on our Facebook group, though you will stumble across them if you choose to do a Google search of this case. In the days after the verdict had been announced, more evidence against Boy A came out that was ultimately denied being shown to the jury by the judge. He felt that there was enough damning evidence against Boy A to prove his guilt and that this extra evidence didn't need to be included. On Boy A's cell phone, investigators found thousands of pornographic images and videos. Many of these were very violent in nature. Murder in Ireland carries a mandatory life sentence, but because these boys were just children when the crime was committed, there was an exception. Ultimately, Boy A was sentenced to life in detention with a review after 12 years, and 15 years with a review after 8 years for Boy B. Boy A will be eligible for release at the age of 26, and Boy B would be eligible for release at the age of 23. The boys are currently being held in the Orberstown Detention Center in North Dublin and will be transferred to an adult prison when they turn 18. And that is the story of the murder of Anna Creasel and the youngest convicted murderers in Irish history. If you're not already a part of our Facebook group, I highly suggest that you join it because in there I will have pictures relating to this case. You can find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In our group, we also share all things true crime and encourage our listeners to share and discuss cases they come across. You can also find us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast platform as well so you're notified every single time a new episode goes live. As always, Crimeaholics, until next time, be aware and take care. (music) 